Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. I'm Garen Jones, and you know what? I'm really happy. Why are you happy, Gez? Well, because uh, Brothers in Arms came out and paid back today, and you guys have been supporting it, and I want to thank you for that, because I know times are tough, so if you do have the pennies and you've spent them on there, then thank you so much. And if you don't, and you want to get it, then I'm going to thank you in advance, and then I'll thank you post-book too. But thank you so much, and thank you so much for spreading the word about the podcast, keeping us growing, keeping us moving. Uh, you guys are suggesting guests, I really appreciate that. Um, you guys are telling friends, really appreciate that. And you guys are listening. You are lending us your ears, really appreciate that too. And I'm going to keep working to bring you great guests, hopefully give you a laugh. Maybe some episodes we might even put on the sensible hat and have a proper conversation like adults. But we will also talk about dick jokes and that kind of thing too because you know can't take everything too seriously can we got another great guest on the podcast today but before we get to him here is a very quick word about our veteran owned or military affiliated sponsors i really appreciate if you listen to this bit guys because without them no podcast first up we have frontier risks group frontier risks group Home of the world's leading practical training course in security risk management consultancy. Frontier Risks This always gets me. Frontier Risks Group is an amalgamation of a number of leading companies in their fields, guided by a team who have equal experience and expertise in their respective domains. From security and crisis management, corporate risk, intelligence and analysis, compliance workplace investigations, trauma response, and training consultancy. In case you didn't get it from that, if it ain't in, if it ain't in there, it ain't in the world of security. Uh, these guys, they run courses. They, uh, they, they've got people who have gone on to work at places like BBC, Netflix, CNN, Deloitte, BAE Systems, Apple, you name it, they've done it. And if you're a veteran or you're transitioning out of the military, then check them out. Um, what they're doing is applicable to people of all ranks, all services. So check them at FrontierRisks.com. FrontierRisks.com. At Frontier Risks Group on social media. I really struggle saying Frontier Risk Group. <laughs> I might have to ask them to change the name on this one. Um, and uh, yeah, check them out, guys. They're tagged up in the posts. Special thank you, as ever, to the Royal British Legion. They're not slowing down during lockdown. They are out there supporting... British veterans and their families as they have been doing for over a hundred years. Anything from financial work, housing work, um, the mental side of things. They support a lot of smaller charities too. People don't know that as well. They just do so much stuff. You can find out all about it at rbl.org.uk or you can find out about it at Royal British Legion on social media. They have great content. Please give them a follow. Please give them a share. Please check them out and give them a thank you too because they do a lot of fucking good work. We are also brought to you by our good friends across the pond, Combat Comover. They make stuff what makes your hair look good. Enough said. Check them out at Combat Comover or CombatComeOver.com. Um, they make pomades. If you want to look fresh, especially if you're in the military, nobody wants a case of helmet hair, do they? You can, if you're a para, you want to stick it in your pubes. Uh, for for your for your mates in the company, you can do that too. There's all kinds of stuff you can do with pomade. Probably works as lube. Um, well, buy a tub. In fact, let me know what you do with it. Stick it on toast if your kids are hungry. There you go. Bunch of different things you can use it for. Come back home over. Check them out. Make your hair look good. Um, and if you use it, send them a picture, and they'll make you insta famous. Because I know that's what all, you're all after. You you TikTok slags. All right. Finally, 
definitely not last leastly, we have Altberg Boots, specialist boot makers. They make incredible boots. Um, our guest, Dean Stott of the SBS. Dean wore the boots when he was um, doing selection for the Special Forces. I think that's a pretty strong recommendation. I, your humble host, Geraint Jones, wore them on three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. They never let me down. They are fantastic boots. They make them for all shapes and sizes and professions. Check them out. You don't have to be in the army to have a pair of these fantastic boots. I wear mine for walking now and I am part of One Surf Div. So check them out at altberg.co.uk. If you've got a pair, send us a picture. I'd love to see them. But um, yeah, make sure your feet are in there. I don't want to look at your gross feet. Altberg.co.uk. Check them out. All right. Today's guest, Scott Davidson. He, he, this guy, this guy cuts the fucking mustard. Uh, Scott is a veteran of Iraq. And he, do, he works... I'd say what, he's not a man who asks for the spotlight, but Scott does a hell of a lot of work for veterans, um, especially in America. He puts on an event called Burbers. I'm going to let him tell you about that, but all I want to say is I fucking love this guy, and by the end of the podcast, you're going to love him too. Scott, if you're listening, me love you long time. Can't wait to chat again, mate. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure. And um, you know what, though? Scott does have some... Uh, it's the downside about Scott is... He was the reason I went out to Vegas in um, at the end of January. And uh, there was definitely a dip in the podcast uh, <laughs> regularity after that point. So he's not perfect because he's an enabler of my drinking. But you know what? I love him all the same. He's uh, a fucking top bloke. Let's get into it. Let's hear from him. Mr. Scott Davidson. There was, these, there was Rambo, their first blood. Because don't get me wrong, like the later ones, I'm not saying, but the first, like the like the first one is brilliant, and then you got Taxi Driver, right? And then it's like we went away from military movies being about that for a while, and then people are like, oh, look, there's new movies come out, like for the first time we're talking about PTSD and stuff. It's like, no, no, people did it, we just went away from it, and that's the same with like studies about it as well. Like there's been there was a lot, there's been like a lot of a lot of studies, a lot of good, uh, gu- you know, books with guidance about how to deal with mental issues for soldiers. Um, you know, like they've had different names for it, like moral cur- or moral fortitude and all that kind of stuff. But it's always been there. It's always been something, but it seems to be one of these things where we have to relearn the same fucking shit all over again. Well, you know what, though? Look, look at it this way. I'll give you that. Here's a perfect shift to what we saw. So taxi driver, late 70s, early 80s, you know, we have First Blood, right? First Blood with Rambo, which, again, Brings it to the forefront, you know. We we know we all know the story. But then look at like I think it was '86. Platoon comes out, right? Mm. And then you look at Platoon as an interesting shift because if you look at the cinema afterwards of Platoon, like Oliver Stone, listen, did a fantastic job. We know that because he captured what really like you know what he wanted to do. Because we know he's got a Purple Heart. He has a Bronze Star. I think he was a combat. He was an Army combat infantry guy um, in Vietnam. He wanted to. He, and he wrote that, that, and the crazy part about that is he wrote that in the 70s, right? He didn't get it rewrote like, into a movie into the 80s. But it changes things because if you notice how things start to go, it doesn't glorify, but it shifts the, um, the focus, like you said, right? It, it, like the first Blood movies, and even look at Deer Hunter, right? Deer Hunter deals with the unbelievable psychological damage of war, right? I mean, we all know, we all know the scene with Christopher Walken, at the, you know, well, the terrible scene, of course, when they forced them to do Russian roulette 
um, when they were caught, right? Him and De Niro, that, that, that powerful scene when they're sitting there. And of course that's their, their game. And then we see it at the end because his friend is so far gone and they, they just, he loses it. Like there was that error. And then you get this different error where it didn't, maybe it didn't sit well with the public. And you know how, at least in America it works, we're so forgetful of shit, right? So like that went away because then you had this beautiful cinematic movie of Platoon that kind of takes you back into Vietnam and tells you not from the really the PTSD side, but the horrors of what actually happens in war, but they kind of left that out. We don't see what happens to Chris Taylor when he gets on the bird and goes home, right? Because all he wanted to do is get the fuck out of there. It ain't going to be good. <laughs> yeah, right? Like him and Big Harrow, all those people are like, I can get home. And then even though Neil stabs himself in the leg to get the fuck out of there because yeah. he doesn't want to kill it anymore. But you don't see what happens afterwards, yeah. right? And I don't think, if we really think about that, we don't see... Go look at all the movies. I think about movies. When do we see something that brings back up in years after that? I think you see parts of it start to come up in like that movie, Thank You for My Service. And that was not until 2000, what, 17, 18? I don't know. That movie didn't help me. I was in a bad mental state at the time. I went to watch a screening of it. And it was like, and hey, like I said this, I said, I actually mentioned in Brothers in, in, Brothers in Arms that um, they nailed the Iraq scenes. Like, they nailed them. When they were driving through that, I was like, oh, I'm going to be sick. You know, like, I had that feeling of, like, oh, here we go. So they really nailed it there. But um, it just wasn't... Uh, oh, wait, we're not going to use the video anyway, dude. <laughs> but, like, Scott very kindly just put a picture of uh, Brothers in Arms up in the background. But um, what, it, what it didn't do for me was, like, there was no offer of hope in there. It was like, you're going to come back, your buddy's going to blow his brains out, and then you're going to be on drugs, and then that's the end. I'm like, well, can we have a bit of hope? Can we have a bit of hope, please? You know what, though? It's universal, too, because what it did was it just demonizes us mm. again. Because all it does is make us look like a bunch of fucking lunatics because that's what now, like, you know what I mean? Like, the cinema influences everybody, right? Yeah. So if you look at Platoon to that movie, like, Platoon made us look, you know, like everyone's, like, everybody for some reason, and I get it, right? They associated themselves with Barnes, right? I mean, if you ever talk to people, they remember Staff Sergeant Barnes, even though he kills the woman in the village and does every fucking thing wrong, and he's the clearly antagonist in the entire movie. <laughs> you know, what do people remember? People remember Sergeant Barnes and he says, I am reality, right? Mm. And maybe at the time that was true. But then you look at, but that's what they, it's demonized, right? Because people are like, oh, what a fucking horrible person this person is. They don't see Chris Taylor and how he's conflicted. They definitely don't see Elias because he gets killed, right? And he's the only guy who's like the yeah. fucking, you know, the one thing. And then the one thing, so I find it interesting that you bring that up is because but then you fast forward to thank you for my service and the same thing. Now what the movie does is like you said, it makes it look very real, the battle scenes, but then it makes us all look like we're all fucked up and broken when they come home. Like the guy, like his pregnant wife and he's punching the fucking walls because he's playing a video game. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in that movie, thank you for service. And you're right. It, it takes us all back to that bad place, but civilians then to just get that bad feeling of, we get that opinion of us, right? Cause when we ever portrayed if we're if we ever think about that, think about what. Tell me a movie where we're betrayed in a manner that isn't in a war scenario, but they never talk about us coming home and what it really looks like, right? Because either it's all full blown like Saving Private Ryan platoon, or it's like we come home and like, oh my god, he's got a drinking problem, or he's gonna go kill somebody, and he's on a rampage. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, like, I'm not saying that Thank You for Your Service is a bad movie per se, mm -hmm. um, but what I'm saying is, is like, it's not a helpful depiction of, depiction of veterans. You know, like that's all I'm saying. Like, it might be an entertaining movie for people, um, and it might be a helpful movie for some people. Personally, I didn't think that it was 
like as a vet, like my problem with it at the time, because I was it, I was at my low ebb at that point was it made me feel worse because right. I was like, oh, fuck, there's no hope. Um, you know, me and I don't know if you know, Nate Boyer, you know, me and him are working on a script. We've got um, uh, we've got um, well, actually, we you know, just talking about First Blood, um, we've got Stallone on as an executive producer and we hope, you know, we're hoping to get that bad boy made this year. And for the whole point of the movie is to, to, to show that there is, that there is hope out of it. And, and one of the, re- one of the ways we're going to do that is by having the people that are involved in it, veterans acting, veterans, veterans directing, veterans writing it, because it's like, you know, guys, you actually have alternatives other than blowing your brains out and um, being an angry drunk. And I think, you know, and that's a beautiful thing because you know who what I thought who did that well. You kind of go back to it, like when Range Fifteen came out. Like, listen, it's a, it's a funny movie, right? But it was very military focused as far as that. But I thought the documentary they did on it um, was very helpful because it kind of showed that side of what you talked about, right? Where it's veterans helping veterans, and there was like a little bit of hope, and it, it had a good background to it, right? I always like it was one of the things that I enjoyed the most. Not because I, you know, we, we know love we know and love Jack, and he was a part of that, and all the guys that were in there. Um, but it also, I love that it was all veterans in that movie, right? Yeah. If you think about not 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 all, but the, the vast majority were veterans, and it painted a better picture. It actually healed a lot of good people, um, and it helped them, right? Because it showed us all coming together as community once again, and showing us, hey, listen, even if we're fucked up and we got a bad thing, we all are, right? We're not. You don't come out of that meat grinder the same i don't give a fuck who you are and you can say how resilient you want to be you want to bullshit some fucking chick at the bar you go ahead and bullshit a chick at the bar about that but you're not going to bullshit guys who actually have been there right um and you don't come back the same because none of my friends did right none of anybody i served with and even everybody i know we all have maybe different experiences but in the end we all know that we didn't come out the same right Mm -hmm. because of what it is and I don't want there to be that illusion, but I also don't want to lose the pureness of what that is. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, sure. like, and I think that's what's great about what you're doing, especially with someone like Nate, who's also been through the ringer and everything else. And you, of course, you know, all you have to do is read that and they'll know. Um, uh, I, it's good to see that you guys are channeling that into it because I think it's a very important uh, part about, it, especially PTSD and the mental state of veterans, um, that we're not all broken that we're there for each other. And when we come together, we truly can do something. Well, one of the things we really hammer on in that movie as well as the day yeah, there's the PTSD, but it's also because it's, uh, you know, Nate's charity MVP. It's about vet, It's about loss of purpose. Yeah. You know, which is a big thing for us. Um, and obviously, you know, you and I have our projects on the go, which I think is what give us purpose. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about, let's talk a bit about that. Let's, let's fill you, let's fill people in about a bit about your background first because um you know I, I always think that rightly or wrongly personally i think it makes sense that it um it does carry more weight when someone's been there done that i just think that's human nature you know if i'm if i'm play if i if i'm learning to play football then i'm going to want someone that's played football at an elite level to teach me and i think that i think in veteran you know if i think in the veteran world um you know, we are like we're built on hierarchy so i think it's important for to know people's backgrounds doesn't mean it's dick measuring but I think it's like a mutual respect kind of thing, and um, you know I have a lot of respect for your background. So let's let's uh, let's hear it for the peoples. So I mean, I, I I actually have the benefit of something that's interesting. I served on all sides in the U.S. Army, right? You know what I mean by that was 
I was a lower enlisted, I was an NCO, and I was an officer, right? I got to live it through all sides. Um, you know, I came in as, uh, of course, as, you know, private, um, worked my way up, became an E5, got my stripes, uh, was an NCO for a while, then went to OCS, became an officer. Um, I didn't deploy until I was an officer, to make that clear, though, I did, I, but I did get to see, I think that was the best part about um, my experience in the service was I got to each, essentially, each shit like everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and here's the unique part, which people may, may or may not understand about me. I had my college degree when I went in as enlisted. Um, right. And I think I t- told you the story. The guy completely fucking sucked with me. I'm not, I, I don't hate Staff Sergeant Philip Toronto. I'll say your name every fucking time. I don't care. But he was the <laughs> recruiter. And I will always – and listen, I was dumb even though, you know, I just gotten out of college um, and I wanted to serve. And uh, I knew no fucking better, right? So even when talking to him and that whole scenario happens, hey, I want to join the Army. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I'm like, I just want to join. How do I, and how fast can I get out of here and join? And he's like, well, you got to do this, but I can have you out of here by Friday. This was a Monday. And I'm like, well, I saw there's like an officer's thing and I have my degree. I'll never forget this. And he go, I go, how do I become an officer? He's like, oh, well, it doesn't work that way. And this is complete bullshit. He's like, it doesn't work that way. He goes, you got to go. And you got to, this is what he said. He goes, you got to spend at least two years being enlisted first. And then you can apply for something called OCS. And then you can become an officer. And I, what I know at the time, that wasn't the true. You could actually go in. But I, it's, I assumed it was because you get certain credit as a recruiter, right? To whatever. So whatever, I'm not mad at him because I had the best time as an enlisted guy at the barracks parties, everything you can do. But it gave me perspective um, because, uh, you know, eating shit as a lower enlisted and, and you do eat shit. I don't care. But you take it in stride. Right. Yeah. Because um, you're a part. I, I, lo- I loved it. Right. Like because I got to go out and do the shit I like every day. And I didn't care. I mean, it was like, you know. There were kids that were, and I was older, right? Because I had my degree already going in. But there were kids that were younger than me, not right? But it didn't, I didn't care. It didn't matter because I was there because it was, it was great that every day was different. Um, then making an NCO, I started to get more of appreciation for it, but I never forgot where I came from. And then being an officer, being a Mustang, as they say, at least in in in, in Eric in America, uh, you know, that really changed things. Going down to Fort Benning. Um, and getting to see everybody from all walks, right? Because that was the greater part was like, I had guys, I had a guy that was a, this was the crazy part. We had all kinds of guys coming through there. We had helicopter pilots. I had SF guys. I had everything in the world that we all got together and we all got our asses kicked one more time because we were all a bunch of fucking, you know, you know, going back to basic training again. Right. So you were, this is when you were doing your training to go from, to go from senior NCO, you were doing like a commissioning course. Yeah, so our officer committee, yeah, mm-hmm. OCS, Officer Candidate School, Fort Benning, the home for boys. It was great because, I mean, they break you down again. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think I told you, maybe it was on our conversation when we were talking to Jack that I laughed because some of the traditions are ridiculous. Like, they would literally, when they'd march us to and from the barracks area to, like, our building, our schoolhouse building, it was embarrassing. Like, we'd wear these stupid fucking helmets. And they, they weren't our regular thing. They were called Kevlar covers, and they were, you know, all black. And then we had a we had to wear an ascot. Don't even ask me. Like, it was ridiculous. But the most embarrassing thing was like like you know like in the old PT Barnum ways, there would be a guy with a fucking bass drum just smashing it behind us, and that's how we <laughs> march. And you would hear it for miles around. 
and everybody would stop what you're doing and look at us because we look like a bunch of idiots, like you know the clowns have come to town. And he, all they would do to keep us on, you know, on step would bang this drum, and they marched us everywhere like that. And it was just a, I don't know, it just always laughed at me, like because you'd see the jump towers and everything else would be going on, and people would literally stop and be like, "What the fuck are these guys?" <laughs> but yeah, I, that's that, that was OCS. That was OCS, and then you know, get commissioned. Um, and then, uh, I get ready, I head down, I go through my officer basic course. And then of course, um, nine 11 happens. Um, many people may or may not know my cousin was killed, um, in nine 11 hours. He was, uh, he, you know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, what's it called? Um, the only saving grace about Jason dying was he was killed immediately. He was where the tower struck. He worked for Karen Fitzgerald, which was the hardest hit uh, firm um, uh, where I, I, I don't know the percentage, but I think the far percentage of the employees, it was the most that had actually perished that day or killed. Um, he had hung up the phone from talking to his, like he would call his kids at the bus stop. I think, and I got to get the story right here. Uh, from his, his his former wife Gina, but um, hung up the phone, and then I believe the plane hit like thirty seconds or forty five seconds later. Um, we buried him, and we didn't have they didn't find him. This is the crazy part. What they did find was um, years later in excavation, uh, it was about that big. They found a part of his forearm, and they were able to it was a skin dried, and they were able to do DNA from his hairbrush um from his house and then match it and then eventually that's what was buried um so we brought i mean we did do the so they did they did what we would say is it the best proper burial we can do but that's a separate thing um so the towers fell it was personal to me it was personal to me anyway as american but it's more personal to me because i um i got on i remember watching it happen of course i had just come off a night shift and then i got on the plane um because i had to go home and see my family my family was a wreck um, and, um, everybody was reeling too, because I lost friends too. A buddy of mine from high school, Brian Goldberg, he was killed in the towers. Um, and, um, went home. I was on ground. I was in ground zero, uh, a little less than a week after it went down. I walked across the bridge. I walked all the way down. I sat there and did all this shit. Like everybody did. We put up missing posters. We knew better, but we still did it. Like, you know, cause we wanted Jason back. And, um, that was an interesting time that I think people should never forget is that was a very, and that was very somber. I do have some pictures from when I was down at ground zero and it was just, it's just a fucking crazy thought, but then that was it. Like my mindset changed and all I wanted was war, right? Because now it's personal and we were attacked like everybody else. I feel at the time at that patriotism. And then, so my first tour, I mean, we went in the invasion 2003. I was with the first Marine division uh, in task force Tarawa. We were an army unit, but we were attached to them. Uh, we were attached to the 2-8, uh, 2 Marines. Um, we maneuvered up with them. Uh, all, you know, we did the Nazaria, went all the way up, all the way into, um, you know, into Baghdad. Um, and we had our fair share of uh, fights. We spent, you know, we did the whole thing. We were right behind Jessica Lynch. Um, we actually pulled Jessica Lynch. People don't know that. We pulled the 507th vehicles out of the, um, of the, uh, God, within 45 minutes of the whole attack on the 507 maintenance company, we had to, we were tasked with pulling our vehicles out and we pulled those burning vehicles out of uh, Nazaria right there on the bridge on the border. 
Um, cause we were, they passed us. I, that's one of the things we'll never forget. We were on the sides of the road waiting and we never, it was early. We had jumped and Bible sevens came barreling past us into the city. And we were waiting because the Marines were setting up to attack. Right. right. And the Bible seventh was basically lost and they passed us. It was bizarre. But anyway, um, so we did that. We did part of the faint and then we went up after they rescued Jessica Lynch. We did our next jump. And then, of course, then we settled up. And then after that, my job was just convoy security. <laughs> I would run the Red Bull Express from um, – I was a first lieutenant then. I would run Red Bull Express routes from uh, Baghdad to Wheel to uh, – actually, at the time, I think it's closed uh, – Al Jabra Air Force Base. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, and then same thing for Doha. I would do some convoys to Doha. And then um, – I actually had gotten out of the service in 2004 after that whole um, incident. I was done. Um, I had hurt myself pretty bad, my leg, my knee, while I was there during the evasion. Um, and um, I, I thought I was pretty much my body was wrecked at that point. And uh, I was like, fuck, I just, you know, and I had, you know, I got my MBA already. I was trying to go start my, my business and do all kinds of shit. And then I started to work for defense contractors, whatever. And then 06, obviously, the surge happened. And then um, that's when I got the call. Um, and, we, you know, it was gone. We were left. I, I left. I went down to Camp Chevy, Mississippi, May of 2006. Is, it, is this a reserve call-up or something? Yes, it was a reserve. I, so it was a reserve call-up. Um, and so this is great. You want to hear how bad things were at the time. Mm -hmm. When I showed up, at, I wasn't even my I wasn't even in a unit. Let's put it that way. Um, we showed up. I got orders to a place called Bell Chase, Louisiana. And I was like, what the fuck is Bell Chase, Louisiana? I show up <laughs> and I'm on a Navy reserve base, which I still don't get, but all right. So they get me to a Navy reserve base and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I find somebody finally. And they're like, yeah, just to give you an idea, there's only seven people in the unit right now. Like they go, we are that decimated as far as people. So everybody that's coming in here are from everywhere. I had guys that were like, literally, I mean, these were all people that were out uh, that come into this unit, not all, except for the seven. Um, and they came in. I remember some guys were looking at, like nobody knew what the fuck was going on. And there were guys who were like, they probably hadn't worn a uniform. And I don't even know. One guy I know was from Desert Storm. Like he was Whoa. just like, it was insane. Like I was like, Look at this fucking crew. It was like the most motley crew you could imagine, right? right. And um, we, and I got to tell you, I mean, because we knew everyone was watching the news. We know how, and you know how bad it is too. In 06, it was a fucking disaster. And we knew what we were getting ourselves into, right? The surge was going to be the surge. It was going to be, we're going there for a reason. And um, I remember, like, at first when we get there, we had our first, uh, our first, KIA was three days in, I think. Yeah, it was three days in. Um, and uh, the first KIA was three days in. Um, and I remember doing the ramp ceremony. I remember doing everything, getting the reports and doing all that shit. And just thinking, fuck, man, three days in. We're it, right? This is it. And then um, I got tasked out to work with um, – I worked with uh, the commanding general at the time – for only about eight, for about six weeks, I worked with him. And then my reward, of course, for doing that was, hey, you're going to go do convoy security. 
And I was like, oh, fucking A, right? This is, what's that mean? They're like, you're doing counter ID. And really, counter ID wasn't even, I mean, it was starting to be a word. We knew what they were, right? IEDs were everywhere. But for the, for, I I didn't know what the fuck that was, right? So, um, yeah, my mission after that, um, not to get into too much, but my mission after that was to work with, uh, we had the largest contingent of, so we worked for something called a 377 TSC, right? Because it was a reserve unit, which is the 377 Transportation, uh, I'm sorry, theater support, Com- theater support Group or Company. That's how much I know what it really was. <laughs> they, were, they were responsible for all the logistics convoys in theater from Afghanistan to Iraq. Right. So any vehicle on the road at any given time in the day, and this is what I remember, I had 9,000 soldiers on the road at any given time. So out of the 9,000 and we're tracking IED attacks and um, I would integrate, I would be in the convoys because I would eventually, well, what I eventually have to do was it got so bad because I mean, there were times we would be, I don't know, 15, 16 attacks a day on us um, just in the convoy wise. I eventually went from trying to figure out how to, defeat because we were and this is no knock on the military at all I don't think this i don't want everyone anybody to take this the wrong way it was just a, a very dynamic and ever-changing situation right and things weren't really integrated well um so we had to basically try to stand up there were great units like sexy which is the combined explosive exploitation cell and um there was jayato that was just standing up also at the time and really doing a great job but for us we just were disconnected in a lot of ways so I had to take it basically on ourselves to go ahead and say, we got to figure out how to save lives of soldiers here because we're getting fucked up. Right. Um, because it was getting to the point where when I would come in day and night, the reports were ridiculous. And I'm like the same convoys get hit six times on the fucking same route. You know, I'm like, we got to do something right now. This is no more. So, um, we got the authority to go ahead and do that. And then what I'd started to do was I started to work with all the different individual units, and then we would, I would integrate myself into the convoys um, and then start to figure out, not that this was anything special, but we would basically start to get live TTPs, like I'd get eyes on and get attacked, the live enemy TTPs of what they were doing. And then I combined them with the reports so we can have a faster response. So I'd be able to say, okay, let's, I'll just use, we'll say ASR Michigan. ASR Michigan, which is fucking shithole outside of Ramadi, I always go, okay, this is what's operating here. Here's the type of IETs we were looking at. This is what I saw happen, right? Here's what I need from you guys, engineers. Get out there and do this, right? Because I need this fucking cleared. I need Jersey barriers here. We need HESCO barriers here. We need whatever it was. I need someone to go talk to these idiot Iraqi police officers right now. And if you got to bribe them or do whatever the fuck you got to do, but have them set up on this bridge to make sure no asshole puts fucking, you know, because someone put seven IEDs over here in the last two days. I know they could see them from doing it, right? Um, that went on until I hurt my leg again. Um, and this one, that one was really, because my leg was already fucking ruined from the first time out. But then I hurt, got hurt again. I had to get surgery in theater. Um, and then I got uh, medevaced out, uh, my left leg. Um, spent time in launch stool. I was in launch stool for three weeks or so. Um, and then uh, after launch tool, and that was all, and I think the extent of time in launch tool was bigger because um, when I was recovering in launch tool, I was watching the TV and the two major things that happened on Fox News, and I'll never forget this because that was what was on. 
in the, like this day room they wheeled me into. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I get wheeled in and you know, you're fucking sitting there and you're like, Jesus Christ, this sucks. And, um, the, I will never forget the day because it was February. So the, the same day it was the Virginia tech, uh, massacre took place. Um, and I watched it. Um, and, and, so that's know, a know. Virginia tech massacre for people. That's a, that, uh, that's a college, an American college campus shooting. Yeah, it was American college campus shooting. And I remember it vividly because, you know, something, it was the first time, listen, we were, not that we're ever desensitized, but I remember the, like you're watching a live broadcast. This is always, this always stays in my mind. And I remember hearing the audible gasp of almost everybody in the reporting room, right? Because it was a live broadcast when they think they said, because originally they were reporting there's a shooting and, you know, like it became commonplace and I hate to even say it, like maybe five dead and that's terrible. Mm-hmm. When they said something like 28, you heard people fucking gasp. Like, like Jesus Christ, that, that that's fucking crazy. And uh, any shooting's crazy, but that in particular was like a shocking number. Um, and then at the same time, Walter Reed's scandal had just broke right? Where uh, the unfortunate, you know, treatment of uh, recovering soldiers of Walter Reed, we weren't allowed to go back because we had nowhere to go. And we were the first people, um, we were the first soldiers on the ground. I shouldn't say soldiers, first service members, because Marines were with us, everybody was with us. That r- arrived, we flew from Lodgestool to, to Andrews. We landed in Andrews. They took us off the plane. They put us in the hospital I forgot what hospital it was probably on Andrews. It was like a, it was an Air Force thing. And then um, they all said, hey, none of you are going to Walter Reed. You're going to the Four Corners, right? And we're basically going to pick you because you're not – they're doing something called Warrior – they didn't call it Warrior Transition Units. They called it something else. Um, oh, that Warrior get, Battalion, was it? Or like, what, wound, wounded Warrior? Wounded Warrior Battalion? Yeah, Wounded Warrior Battalion. They go, you're going to go back and recover. And um, – sorry. And um, what happened was um, – this is an interesting thing. Just again, this is never me complaining. I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but this is the reality of what the fuck. And this is what makes, I think, the military great. This is a pivot that they had to do. So they get us and they're like, listen, you're going to Eisenhower Medical Center in Fort Gordon. They said that to me. I'm like, uh, okay, what the fuck am I doing there? Right. And they're like, okay, this is where you're going. And um, I'll never forget this. So there was a bunch of us. There was uh, probably about six of us on the plane. They put us on C-130s in cargo nets. I was on a stretcher. Uh, actually, we all were on stretchers. And um, they put us in the fucking cargo nets. And, you, and you know, you've been on military transport planes before, right? Nothing's comfortable about it. But it's not even, nothing's worse than the fact that you just had surgery a couple weeks earlier. And, like, now I'm on the fucking rattle box. Like, there's no way, you know what I mean? But the crazy part about this was we fly, we land. And I remember I was the highest rank. I was a captain at the time when I got hurt. And I was a captain and everybody else was like E4 and below, like specialists and below. And I remember a chaplain gets on the plane. And they, you know, they bring the ramp down, the chaplain gets on the plane. And he finds me. Right? He goes up to me, he goes, all right, hey, listen. And he was, I think he was a lieutenant colonel. And he said, um, hey, I, just so you understand, we're doing the best that we can. So I already knew. I'm like, all right, so it's oh, probably fucked. Yeah, so that's it. When I hear the best, we're doing the best we can. I know it's fucked up, but um, he's like, "We have a school bus, and we're going to transport you in a school bus to the hospital." And I'm like, 
okay. And I'm not a complainer, but what they did was, it's innovative, I guess. They took us and they put us in between the seats. (laughs) And they picked us up. And that's how they brought us to the hospital in a yellow school bus. And um, (laughs) I was like, all right, this is great. I don't care. We're getting to point A to point B. And that's how they brought us in. And of course, they did their intake. And we had some problems, though. Um, We had a suicide within probably the first 10 days we were there. Um, now I don't know it, they called it a suicide, well, it probably was a suicide. It was an, it was a drug OD, um, young soldier, uh, pills and drinking. And, um, like then, then like it just became such a fucking shit show. Like, and I'm, this is no bullshit. Like some of us couldn't even stand. Right. I mean, we were sitting there and we were, they were making us because of that, they were making a show of the formation. And I remember, <laughs> I remember calling the commander. They had to get a major. This guy was so pissed. He's so mad that he had to get this. Because I was a captain and I was the highest rank. They had to get a major to come in to run the the unit because they said you had a captain down there. I remember him telling me the story. He's like, and they needed someone to outrank you to at least to, you know to maintain it. Oh and this God. dude just fucking hated life. He's like, fuck, I gotta deal with this. And I just remember I called him and I'm like, listen. I'll fucking call you. I ain't getting up. I go, I got enough trouble. I just want to get the physical therapy and get the fuck out of here. Right. You know what I mean? I go and you know, and the rest of these soldiers too. I mean, they're just having a rough time at it. So, you know, let's, can we make this easier? He's like, I can't. He goes, you got to show up in formation. And I go, then fucking mark me down. I, you know, and now, listen, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Like fucking leopard crawl? Yeah, like it was, but they made us, and I'm like, eventually it got to the point where I just stopped showing up. I'm like, I'm going to call you. I'm alive. If you need to check on me, come to the hospital, and I'm here, right? I mean. But that stuff's happening right now, isn't it, that they're getting they're getting people to turn up on formation. Like when they're, well, I mean, apparently, like now the riots are happening, COVID's just not a thing anymore. But when it was a thing, they were like, right, well, we don't want to get you guys together because of social distancing, but we we're going to all bring you together for formation to make sure that you're social distancing and then go home. It's like, what? I love the military logic, dude. It's fucking, it's brilliant. Don't you find it amazing though? I mean, it literally, like, I, I tried to even find a story about COVID <laughs> like yesterday. And I'm like, I want to find a story. Like, is there something going on? I guess I mean, it's sort of great one from New Zealand. And no disrespect to this woman. I wish she was still alive. I'm sure she was a lovely person. But the latest one from New Zealand was she was 96, 96 years old. Ooh. She died. She didn't have COVID. And they're not trying to, sorry, she had COVID. And, they, and they're, they're admitting that she wasn't. She was, she's admitting that that's what, not what killed her, but it was present, so she's been marked as a COVID death. She's 96 years old. <laughs> like, she's 96 years old. But, man, I, I just think it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, we won't go into the riot stuff, man, because it's just, but um, we got so much. We got so much other stuff to talk about. Like, you don't want it to, I mean, I, it's not about the riot stuff, but this is, I wrote something today and I was kind of like thinking about it. And, I, and this is not. You know, I know you, I, I've, I've been following you and I'm, I'm, I'm always curious about your perspective because, you know, I'm you're seeing it from, yeah, well, you're, you're seeing it from across, you know, your, the way. And I like it because you're not, a, yeah, you are a red coat, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I find you to have an objective opinion because you're not living it, right? So you're seeing it from an outside. Um, what's your, I mean, what are your, I can give you my thoughts on it. Um, and I'll just say, I'll say it this way. I wrote something this morning because like, you know, the reality is, is that you can't, 
people can't get mad when somebody, if we look at the history of systemic racism, right, in this country, right, and it's true, and if you fucking want to deny it and get fucking pissed at it, then you're a part of the problem. Sure, but, I agree. like, like, I, because, you know, I served with, you know, for me, I mean, I served with everybody of every color. I, I always said we were green, and I thought that was the beauty of the Army was that we were taught about respect. It's our, it's our pillars. Now, listen, not everybody follows it. There's always going to be bad apples, right? But I'm going to tell you, and you know this better than anybody else, when the shit actually hits the fan, I don't give a fuck who you are. If, you, if, if you are still somehow a racist in that moment, when there's some asshole, you're caught in an L-shaped ambush or some shit like that, and this hit off a fucking, you know, or victim-operated IED that went into an L-shaped ambush, and we're fucking stuck in a kill zone. You know, those things are gone because you have to think about, I got this part, we're relying on each other. We can't have any type of divide. But what I was trying to get to was, you can't be mad at African-Americans when they have tried everything in their power to tell you there's a problem, right, mm -hmm. in this country. And they try to do it peacefully, right? Because even look at everyone, get mad as you want. I'm about to say it. Colin Kaepernick, he did it in a sense where he talked to Nate Boyer, and they came to what I thought was a reasonable agreement. It says, you know what? Don't sit there in the national anthem, but kneel. And what do we do before? And I don't know about you, and this is what I used to do. I would kneel and pray before I go into combat, right? If like, I remember very specifically March 17th, I kneeled at that fucking border with all my soldiers. We put our hands on each other. We said, all right. And the chaplain came over and put his hands on us and he fucking gave the prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And even in 2006, before every convoy thing, a lot of us would kneel because we'd be like, all right, this is it, right? You know what I mean? Like if we're going, we're going. And it could happen. And my thought was they tried so hard for so long and they, you know, if you do that and when they're trying to do it peacefully and you still were mad at it, how can you be, I mean, you, someone has to have an outlet. You can't fuck with somebody for so long and expect them not to give back. It's just like if someone fucks with you, like if a bully fucks with you all day, you're going to lose your mind eventually and fight back, right? Yeah. You know, it just, that's my thought on it is that you can't get mad when they, you, you try everything in your power to say, hey, we have a serious problem here. Because if it's only one person, that's different, right? You know this, right? So one person, all right, I believe you, but you know, like that. But when it's an entire society and culture of someone saying, hey, we have been fucking oppressed, racial injustice, all these things, and they keep saying it over and over again, and then you have all these things that keep happening to them. And then, because it doesn't somehow affect you, because you, you know what I mean? Because that's really what it comes down to, right? Because they're not like if you're you know if you're let's just say even caucasian like if you don't have to think about the fact oh there's a cop driving behind me and everything's okay like if you're not if you don't have that you don't know what it's like to go through that life exactly. and that's the problem i have with it the problem i have on top of it as well is so like one of the i got you know i'm getting a lot of shit off people at the moment because i'm saying look if you're a veteran and you've been to Iraq and places, I guarantee you, you've cheered when someone's house has been blown up. Like, oh, well, there was bad guys in the house. Yeah. Well, yeah, but the bad guys didn't own the fucking house, right? So you've cheered destruction of property, and now you're saying, oh, look at these animals savaging property. Now, the reason you cheered that building was because you were like, one, you were scared. And like, whether you want to admit it or not, you were scared. So when you see something blow up with the enemy in it, it makes you feel better. And it's a that release of tension. 
but also because you know you're just you're not seeing someone's house at the moment you're seeing something that shelters the enemy now i'm not saying this is the case for all looters but a lot of these people are smashing shit up they're doing it because they're scared they're doing it because they've been pushed so as a veteran who's cheered fucking shit blowing up in other countries get off your fucking high horse and stop saying like oh these people are terrible i would never do that because you did it yeah guarantee i i've done it i fucking cheered someone's house getting blown up now, was I thinking it through at the time? No, but these people, a lot of these people aren't fucking thinking it through too. They're lashing out. And like, you know, we, like, when the Iran situation was happening a few months ago, there was a lot of people who were all on board fucking bombing Iran. And I was pissed off at the time because I'm like, look, it's not going to, it's going to be people who, normal fucking people who you'd probably get along with who are going to pay the price of this. Right. Oh, fuck them. It's Iran. Now it's at home and it's, it's people's businesses. Oh, no, we don't want it to happen. That is racism. The fact that you're okay with a culture on the other side of the world getting blown up and not your own, that is racism. You're not seeing people as people. You're distinguishing them by religion. You're distinguishing them by color. That is exactly what racism is. And here's the other thing, mate. I challenge anyone to look themselves in the mirror and say they've never had a racist thought or done a racist act. I fucking have. I'm sure everyone has. There has been time. It might, And it might even be a positive racial one. You might go, oh, this person's Asian. They're great at math. Still racist. Still judging someone on the sixth game. We all do it. We're all, we're like, it doesn't mean that we're all doing it maliciously, but this idea, I've had some people today say, systematic racism doesn't exist. Our like, fucking, you, you, what planet are you on, man? Like, I have friends who are like, fucking great people. I hear stories, mostly in America. I will say, I do think Britain, we're a bit further along. Yeah. I have friends who are dedicated to their partners and their partners' families have wanted not them to have nothing to do with them because of the color of their skin. I've had friends who were serving in the military who have been pulled over by police officers and they feared for their lives because of that interaction. It's fucking nuts. It happens. If you pretend it's not happening, you're part of the fucking problem. Actually, you summed it up beautifully. That is absolutely true, what you just said. And I, so the, the, the one thing, let's hit on a couple of things. Everything you said is absolutely right. Not, not everybody's perfect. We're fallible, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're humans. Um, but you cannot deny that the systemic racism, because the system was built on it, right? <laughs> you look at socioeconomic factors. Just look, I, let's take out individual racism, right? Like against individuals. So I do a lot of work, obviously, with my company um, in government contracting, right? The government recognizes, and this is from far back, just in this country, that there's so much inequality that they had to create special socioeconomic categories for businesses just to allow, let's just say, minorities to even catch up and get some type of opportunity, right? Like whether it's, you know, historically underutilized business zones that they would designate or, you know, um, they call them 8As here. 8As basically uh, kind of cover, uh, you know, just the general, uh, the focus of minorities to give them contracting opportunities to build a business, right? Because they know, like, they cannot extend it at to that there there's uh, there is that social inequality right the government recognized that in those programs and they've been around for years so even the government recognizes that there's social inequality mm-hmm. just even from a business perspective right um but i want to kind of go back to just something you had said um about iran because this is a good point it's the fucking people and i'm going to say this right now that were cheering let's go bomb these motherfuckers you said it best just now it's not their sons and daughters that are mm-hmm. ones on both sides that are going to bleed and die. If I go to an Iranian right now and you like just the normal guy or girl who's trying to fucking just make it right. 
they're not they're, they don't want war they don't want to be crushed under the boot heel of either either side they want peace because they want to raise their family and fucking relative peace and and try to just try to enjoy it instead of doing it so i find it like you said terrible that everyone's like oh go ahead and attack this other country it's not so easy because they're not the ones who have to sit there and you know fucking just write that letter hand that flag over and sit there and console your friends and say, fuck this guy and this girl. We're never going to see them again. And dude, there's some ripples as well. Like that passenger plane that got shot down was mostly full of Canadians. Canada weren't even involved. Yeah. But I keep saying I keep saying this to like, when you have a war, you don't get to just pick out bad guys that die. It's not that. The ratio of innocent people that die to quote unquote bad guys is huge. Like, I... um. You know what? One of the big questions, just on one on racism that I'd like, or systemic racism that people might be interested in, is check out the book by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, and it ba- and it basically explains how like hard work it, you need it to succeed, but then there's all these other factors that will then come in. So, for instance, I'll be you know um, I've been very lucky that I've been born to the parents that I've been born to in the town that I've been born to. You and I both saw. Um, you and I both saw um, Iraq at like for for a soldier, we were in Iraq at a good time. We were we served in a good time. We saw like a lot of soldiers don't get to see active service. We did because of that. I have that bucket behind you because yeah. of that. We're connected. There's all these little things that go in. That stuff isn't down to hard work. A lot of that stuff is down to circumstance. So it's it's I I don't I don't like this thing of oh if you live in the hood you've got just as much chance of making it as somebody. Who, was born into a, a middle class family in Connecticut. Of course, you fucking haven't. You no. doesn't mean you can't make it, but the odds are stacked against you. And systemic racism doesn't need to mean that people are going out actively. Like it doesn't mean people are putting robes on and going out and actively trying to get you. It just means that the area you're living in is maybe more impoverished, so you don't get as much money for school programs. So you don't get education. It's all these little like these little things. And to I think to like. What, what I don't get what's gained by saying no I don't believe in it like are you just trying to put your, is, you know are people just trying to put themselves on the other side is it just they just want an argument or I think to be honest mate I think what it is is they don't want to realise that they have a leg up in life because they feel that, that somehow demeans the hard work that they do which it doesn't you can believe in system, systemic racism and you can you can have had all the privileges in the work and you can still work hard. It doesn't like just because you are on the privileged side of things doesn't mean that you're not a hard worker. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve what you've got. It just means be grateful for what you've got and let's try and level the playing field and let everyone else fucking have the same thing. It's, and it's empathy too, right? Because I go back to the whole thing. It's like you, like, again, and, and they, they, they bring up the thing where it, if you're afraid, like to stay, it happened the other night too. Like if you have to be afraid because you're driving, mm-hmm. give me a break. Like, I mean, that you have to acknowledge that exists, yeah. right? Because, like, like I mean, if you and and I and that's what breaks my and that's the other part about it, it breaks my heart because I, I hear stories. I'll tell you, this this is a story and it stayed with me. And this actually is what really changed it. Happened before the war, it changed my perspective because it was in there, it was in uniform when it happened. Um, and I'll never forget this. We were inside, and this is not to disparage a, a state, but. Fuck you anyway, if you think that. Fine. Um, I was on a training mission with my with still to this day, my what my best friend, he's African American. We were both, you know, we, we were both first lieutenants at the time. It was two thousand and two. It was August of two thousand and two. 
And we were, we got tasked out to do TDYs, a temporary duty to get trained up on a system because we knew we were going to Iraq at that time. Regardless of anybody wants to fucking think we were getting ready, right? Um, and we got sent down there. And I'll never fucking forget this. We were both in uniform. We went to a place uh, to go eat lunch. And we weren't familiar with the area. Mm. He had grown up in the South, though, right? And I remember walking in. We sit down. And no bullshit. The guy comes over, I assume was the manager. He goes, you guys, we don't want any trouble. But you can't eat here. Whoa. And we're both in uniform. And this is one of the things that stuck with me. So I got very, and I got a fucking temper, right? And I always have been, right? Regardless, it's not about the army or PTSD. I had a temper since the day I was born, right? <laughs> so, and I, and I have no problem. If you want to go, we're going to go, right? I may lose, but I'm going to fucking try, right? <laughs> so I got, I stood up and I remember, and you know, out of respect for him because he doesn't want his name out, I'll say it. But I remember him telling me, he goes, listen to me. He goes, we ain't making out of this fucking town if you do this. He goes, walk away, let's go. And I go, I get in a car and we left, right? And I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding. We were in uniform. Yeah. Like we weren't like like civilian clothes. We were in legit uniform. And it was with like a small shit because I wanted it was like, you know why you're in I was in Al, you know, I was in uh fucking uh you know right outside of Ritzel Arsenal. I wanted to try the barbecue, which I heard is amazing. We found a little shit shack on the side of the road and they absolutely were like, no, get him out of here. And I stood up and he's like, and at that point I realized that how deep it ran back then. You think about that, this is 18 years ago and I'm sure it's gotten nothing worse, but um, yeah, they absolutely. And he said, you, we won't make it out of this town alive. If you fucking do something right now. And he knew, and he knew better. And he thanked, I mean, to this day, I always we, we talk about that moment and because he had experienced that and that broke my heart a little bit too, because I love that motherfucker. We went to war together and, um, best man of a wedding, everything you could think of. And to think that he had to deal with that. And I never saw it until really that, I mean, you kind of see it, but that was like a very pivotal moment when I see things because we're in uniform. Yeah. We were ramping up. 9-11 had already happened. So there's a wave of patriotism. And these fucks decided that he couldn't eat at that restaurant. And it was the craziest thing ever. I, to this day, I never forget that. But that always angered me, and it really changed my life perspective. I think it's very hard for British people to get their heads around me. I had a lot of resistance to the idea when I first heard it because I'm like, nah, that's not how it is. Because you don't think that way; you think other people don't. And it's only after years of going back and forth on extended vacations to the states, and you know, like you know, I, I didn't really have many black friends in the UK. Now I've got friends that grew up in different parts of America who are black. And hearing stuff like little things, like people like will see them coming and switch to the other side of the road to walk past because it's like, you know, and then look, you know, like looking at them as in this person's dangerous. Why? Because they're black. You know, like I'm not saying and like, you know, I'm not saying that that only happens. That could happen if you're if you've got face tattoos, if you're a white guy, people might do that to you. But the fact is it happens. And to right. be followed, to be followed around stores and all this kind of stuff. It happens, and I've not like I've I've had a lot of back and forth with a lot of British friends of mine recently because they like they just because they haven't experienced that it's very hard to accept it. And the reason you don't accept it, if you're listening to this right now and you don't accept what me and Scott are saying, it's because you're a good person. You don't want to believe that that happens in the world, so you're you're resisting it for a good reason. Unfortunately, 
the people who are around this world, some of them are not as good as you are. And some of them do not live by the standards you do. And some people are still in 2020 flat out fucking racists. Yeah. Bottom line. Like we saw a lot. There was a surge in racism. And I'm not knocking Trump because honestly, I just, for me, most politicians are, are, are all the same. Um, there are that for themselves as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah. what I will say is that I think in populist politics in the UK and in America and in Europe, um, we have seen people feel like, because people are like, oh, wow, there's a resurgence in racism. It never went away. People yeah. just felt, people were just hiding it. And then and then it's come out. But mate, before, um, I want to like, draw a line in the racism because I think you and I both on the same page that it is a load of fucking... Uh, there's a lot of fucking bullshit and that we is something that everyone needs to stand up against. And like I said, if I understand anyone who has resistance to what we're talking about here because it took me a long time to accept because I just didn't want to accept the people in my own country or in America were bad like that. But it's true. But, mate, I want to talk a bit about Burbies. Yes. So, fill people in. Fill them in. What is Burbies? So, Burbies really comes out of a concept you've – I don't know. You know Justin Constantine. Um, Justin and I, you know, when we were recovering – um, I met Justin at a, at a, at a at, and again, I'll always plug this, uh, this organization, IBMF Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University. They run something called EBV, which is Entre- Entrepreneurial Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities. Um, I was teaching a set, I was actually teaching at the national convention. I met Justin there. Um, uh, and I always tell people this and Justin came in, you know, and Justin, of course, um, has had, you know. He had a horrific wound from Iraq. He was in Ramadi in 2000, I'm sorry, in 2006 in October was when he was wounded. Um, he was shot in the, well, he was shot in the head, but it, it, you know, he shot in the back of the ear and, and then it came out the front of his face. Uh, he survived. He's an inspirational speaker now. He's, you know, he inspires me every day. He motivates me. But Justin and I actually, we met that day and we kind of, we just, he does like he always does. He's like, let's go have a drink. So we went and had a drink. And we just started talking about just how difficult shit was um, for people, like for veterans recovering in general. That's where it comes from. Like what it's like to transition out of the military, right? And I have, you know, one of the things that I brought up to him was why I specifically remember, and this was the craziest thing or part of it. We had a young, when I was in the, when I was recovering in in 07, there was a young E4 female. specialist. She had a significant head wound. Uh, she had serious head trauma from an IED and she was recovering with us. And, um, she had short, significant short-term memory loss, right. From the, from the, uh, from the wound. And, um, she was 20 mm-hmm. and she had to wear a fucking, um, a thing around her neck it was like back then it was, you know, it's not a Blackberry, but it was, uh, it was like those old trios. You remember those things that they were a trio. They were like, it was like a Blackberry, but it was like a thing that was like, it was like a little electronic, like, um, I forgot the name of them. Anyway, it's like a, it's just an electronic reminder thing. Right. And what it would do is because she would forget so much, like she would have to put things in immediately and it would remind her to go to things because right. she couldn't remember. Um, and I remember I walked out of an, uh, I was in my office with the physical evaluation board, the liaison officer. We were like, this was this weird little place here. They're called Peblos in the, in the army's world. Cause I was, they were medically retired. And, and um, she was crying when I came out of the office, she was just in, in the corner crying. And I went over to her. I, I had to know why. And I go, Hey, are you okay? And she said, she said, sir, I, 
they're trying to Article 15 me. And, you know, Article 15 is a non-judicial punishment. As you know, like, fucking up. if you fuck up, that's how we get you, right? We're going to, yeah. you know, we can do a million things. I don't know what they call it in the British Army. But basically, they just basically, they can take your pay. They can make you do extra duty. They can fuck with you. You know, basically, it's, again, non-judicial punishment. Um, and I go, what are they trying to Article 15 you for? She's like, I don't know, but they keep saying I'm missing appointments. And I'm like, wait a minute. I go, and I knew her story, right? Mm -hmm. And I go, who is trying to article 15? And she said, so-and-so's name. I'm not going to say his name. And I said, you stay here. I'm going to go take care of this. And I went in and I went and found this individual. Um, He was an E7. And I said to him, and non-deployed E7, which at the time, of course, I had a chip on my shoulder and pissed me off because I'm like, you know, that really fucking... What's an E7? Like a sergeant major or something? Uh, E7's a sergeant first class, so like E, E9 would be a sergeant major, so okay. he's two down. But he's pretty a... Up. Pretty up there. E7, you're up there. Yeah, you've been around. Like, you probably at least have maybe... If you're really good, shit, I've seen 12 years, but usually it's 15 to 17. Right, right? Okay. Yeah, so it's not like you're you're not off the... You're, you're not a newbie. You're definitely... You've seen your share in your career soldier and um i said listen you better cut this fucking out right now i go she can't even fucking remember something from five minutes ago and you're trying to put more trauma on this fucking board i go jesus christ guy let's let's get this done i go you got 24 hours i actually said that this is i remember specifically i go you got 24 hours i go make it right go deal and work with her but if i fucking hear in 24 hours that she's not being taken care of properly and you're not threatening her and dealing with it appropriately, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, I absolutely am going to go over your head and I'm going to fucking call the goddamn hotline. And at the time they established this hotline because this, the, the, the maltreatment of soldiers at, at uh, Walter Reed. Yeah. yeah. I go, this, that's what, so that's exactly what happened was uh, 24 hours came and went. He did nothing like an asshole. And um, I'm like, okay, good to go. I'm absolutely First thing I did, though, before I did, so I will say, I do remember, I did call my chain of command because it was still in existence, obviously. I called overseas on a DSN line. I got a whole fucking two-star general, and I said, hey, sir, listen. I go, um, I explained the situation. I go, I wanted you to be aware because if there's any blowbacks, I know they're going to call you my chain of command eventually. I go, so I just want to let you know. He lost his mind. He goes, if you're fucking being, he goes, this is not real. He goes, if that's the truth, I'm fucking calling at the time, I believe it was General Shoemaker, um, and who was the um, uh, the army like the army surgeon general, and um, or the head of medcom. I, just, I might be wrong on the, what the title was. And then, um, yeah, no. So within 24 hours, I made the call right away. Uh, and within 24 hours, um, uh, they came down and did an investigation. Um, and they they separated everybody. We had a town hall. They interviewed everybody. Uh, and I remember the major pulling me in there, that guy that they brought in. He goes, I fucking want you out of here. Like, you have no idea. He goes, I got a goddamn full, I got Congress calling me. I got a four-star <laughs> general fucking calling me. And I go, but I came and told you to fix it. But, like, and then whatever. They, they expedited me very quickly out of there. <laughs> I got retired very, like, what I thought would take months, I was fucking home very quickly. Nice. Which is a completely another story, which we'll talk about, about transition. Um, but the, the, what, to come back to that was I told that story to Justin and it resonated to him because we both looked at each other and realized that if that's happening to an E4, and the only reason it was amplified to where we got her help was because we happened to be there. And we happened to be officers at the time to do something. 
And Justin, who at the time, when people forget, he was a major at the time. He had volunteered. He was a JAG officer. He was an attorney by trade, too. He was a JAG officer who volunteered to go with the Civil Affairs Unit into Ramadi. And he was only in country for three weeks before he got shot in the head. Hmm. So, like, he had every, he had different opportunities, too, because he was a field-grade officer who had this horrific wound, which most people don't even survive. And everybody did everything in the world to cater to him. Now, he recognizes that, right? And he recognized, and he even said to me, he goes, we have to do something to get the, the ones who, like, listen, wars are fought in one of the backs of E6 and below. Mostly E4 and below. Let's never forget that, right? So that's where Burbiz actually came from, right? It evolved from that concept of the, you know, the, the four-star generals and the colonels and the sergeant majors of the world. They really have a Rolodex when they get out. And it's an incredible network. And everybody wants them because that is a fucking awesome photo opportunity. They got this great Rolodex to talk to people. They're going to hire them because they have led men and women in combat and they have all this responsibility. Yet we were given E4s, multi-million dollar equipment um, and all these things, right? But yet fuck them, right? They're not getting the same opportunity. So we said we need to be able to come together and figure out how do we make things where people feel that they can let their guard down a little bit, remember the camaraderie of service, and then get every resource available out there. Whether it's finding a job, starting a business, or you just want to talk to people. Suicide prevention, PTSD, fucking all that. I said, why does it always have to be, it's got to be, if it's a convention or something, it's always got to be focused on one thing. Whether it's, oh, it's going to be entrepreneurship, or it's going to be, oh, it's going to have to go find a job. You know, it's never everything. So that's where Burbage came out of it, where is we said we want to do a one-stop shop. And, you know, it took us years. We fucked it up a lot of times till we got it right. You know, we started introducing liquor and we started making oh, things. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> I'm still hungover from Vegas, bro. Yeah, we did. You remember, yeah, from what you remember from Vegas. But that's what we noticed was Burbage was take every resource out there, have them mingle, take out really what the, you know, really being behind the tables and have resources mingle with veterans and military spouses so they can have that conversation. Because when you walk, you know, from Vegas, when you walk that room that night, you walked into some of the most successful veterans in our space and time. Yep. Right. And they were just there and people didn't realize I mean, you had all kinds of people there. We had, I mean, the interesting thing was you had all kinds of people in that crowd that night. We had Pierre Garcon, who plays for the NFL, with, you know what I mean? From, he played at the time for the, uh, for the San Francisco 49ers, and he had played for the Redskins. He was in the crowd, you know? So it's interesting to see the different sides of how everybody interacted that night to everybody from the Black Rifle guys, to the Grunt Style, to every, you know, from Team Rubicon, to anything you could think of. They all came together. But that's our events is... I took, we, Justin and I wanted to take down barriers to access to resources, make it a fun environment, and then remind you of the camaraderie that we had together while we served. I fucking love it, dude. I can't wait for the next one. And you've just done an online one, too. You had Gary V on there. Like, you had some fucking, you had some big hitting names on there. We did. So, I mean, we, we ran it. So we had Gary V. We had, of course, the, the, the lovely Jocko uh, Wilnick. We had... Um, uh, Ralph Galati, who was a POW with uh, at the time with John McCain. We had um, Flo Broberg, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, Justin Constantine, Chef Rush. I mean, so I I was proud of that because it was great to see the 
that people were willing to do it, right? Because when this is, and this is something we'll tell you, especially about the Gary Vee organization um, and, and Vayner Media and all that. And I thought this was the best part about working with them. When we explained the mission of what we were doing, and we said, we have no ask. It's always free for everybody. We showed them the videos of what we do. There was zero hesitation so on they, them wanting to help us. And I think that speaks volumes about Gary V and, and Steve, uh, which was, I think, he's the executive vice president we worked with. And the other people in that organization was, they said, mm. we're here to help and we want to help. And did it, right? I mean, I'll tell you what, I thought his message was great. And then Jocko, of course, and everybody, it was just good to see everybody kind of come together from that level down. I mean, Gary Vee owns the space, right? Where there's no doubt about that. He is probably the most sought after guy in the world to get that. And we were just proud to see him come out for the, the veteran community and speak and want, want to be a part. Yeah, that's, that's sick, mate. Mate, we need to wrap this up, but let's do another one soon, man. Um, where can everyone find, where can everyone find you um, online on the interwebs? So I think for, for, for the purpose of Burbiz, uh, Burbiz.com, B-O-U-R-B-I-Z.com, that'll give you any events that we're doing from our nonprofit standpoint. Um, I would say to check that out. Uh, and that could lead you to all our social and to everything else that we're doing from the veteran and nonprofit space if you want to find us. Um, and everybody else out there who don't know about the veteran state of mind, go buy his book. It's actually really, really good. <laughs> It's in paperback too, by the way, but I don't fuck around. I got the I got the hardcover, as you can see. Yeah, it's dog-eared, but I mean, there's nothing I can do about that because I, I it's a bad uh, habit of myself ruining books that way when I when I kind of fuck them up a little bit. But it's a great book, and I'm glad and I'm honored to be on with you today. I appreciate it, mate. That saves me having to plug it when I do the outro, uh, mate. Thanks so much for for coming on, buddy. So after that, I think you will all agree with me. Um, that Scott is a top bloke definitely looking forward to catching up with him on the podcast again in the future and in Vegas for shenanigans guys thank you so much for listening just before you go if you can lend me your ears for one minute uh, the book Brothers in Arms came out today in paperback if you've got the pennies you could pick up a copy I really appreciate it if you can't get it and you still like to um, help your mucker G out if you could just make a post about it. If you haven't got the money to make it, um, to, to buy it, if you can make a post about it, maybe someone else will buy it. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, writing is my full-time job. And um, and if writing goes well, it means you can do more podcasts, basically. So there's something in it for everyone. Something in it for everyone. But mostly me. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be my name on the bestseller list, isn't it? But you'll all be there in spirit. Uh, guys, fucking love you a lot. Um, you know what? I'm really proud of... As a veteran community, there's a lot of shit going on in the world. But um, here we are, standing strong together, lifting each other up, not putting each other down. That's what it's all about at the end of the day, isn't it? Uh, I'm giving you all virtual hugs right now. I'm assuming that there's consent by the fact that you've come onto the podcast. So I'm reaching in through the microphone. I'm reaching down and I'm touching you. And I I hope that you enjoy it because I'm enjoying it. Who have we got up next? Monday. Coach Mike Chadwick will be in the building. Love Mike. Looking forward to the episode. It's a banger. Already recorded it. So I can tell you it is good because I've already been there. It's happened in the past. It's a past the future. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to get off the microphone now. Have a great fucking day. Brothers in arms. Me love you long time. Catch you guys soon. Love you. Bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout out Teaser.
told me not to worry And you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault and yeah I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter yeah I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go now live your life and spread your wings And yeah you put on quite a show and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in shame But yeah you've taken me for granted and you should feel ashamed You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't change shit I wouldn't go back, yeah I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back Memories fade, yeah They go fast, yeah They go fast Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose Time to speak the truth now And let me get this amplified Not holding back, no one personified and terrified I thought I had the knowledge What it takes to save a life Until I lost three friends in one week to suicide Now let me ask you this Do you think you could sleep at night? Depression is consuming you Your happiness seems out of sight I'm putting up a fight I'm screaming out these battle cries I'm just a lonely soul A man amongst the men that died I lost my faith in everything And sat down with the devil Spoke with him for hours Yeah, he made it sound so simple I don't know how it got this bad I guess it's accidental But before I knew it I had a gun up to my temple I was ready to end it And call upon the curtain No amount of drugs or alcohol Could take away the hurting I couldn't see another way out And it wasn't working As I cocked the gun to my head The devil started smirking I looked at him confused About his motive and direction Yeah, it hit me I've been looking at myself It's my reflection I won't forget it That feeling of acceptance I can be the guy That's looking back with knowledge As my weapon Cause it's inside of you And it's inside of me The real killer in depression Is to suffer silently The journey's rough The road is long You've just got to you haven't got to see the whole staircase, just the first step And have you ever felt to pack your bags and run away? The black sheep of your family, an outcast or a lonely stray But let me tell you now, it's normal if you feel that way You wanna leave the shit behind and go and find a happy place What if I told you, the real thrill is in the chase No matter how fast you can run, you'll never find a hiding place I've lived the story that I'm telling, I know talk is cheap I'm living eight and stories up, but I'm a hundred deep I said in Superman, I'd live and laugh and dance for days Until the day my casket lays it's hard up in these darker days We focus on the latest craze And cloud our minds in purple haze Trying to understand the reason why our birth takes place I'm near the end now And I guess it's time for closure I've lowered the gun from my head Returned it to the holster I'm strong enough to carry on With weight upon my shoulders My letter to the world Confessions of a soldier, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't change shit I wouldn't go back, yeah I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back Memories fade, yeah They go fast, yeah They go fast Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose